Deep Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing. I'm He Yang. Good to have you along. CPR improves survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, yet CPR rates remain low. Unfortunately for women, stats show fewer females receive the life-saving procedure in public than men, which means women have a lower chance of survival during out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We take a deep dive in what contributes to the CPR gender gap and how to close that gap. And we share with you what's made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Place. For today's program, I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's Roundtable, CPR. Or cardiopulmonary resuscitation is a life-saving technique performed in emergencies such as a heart attack or near drowning. But research shows women are less likely to receive CPR in public than their male counterparts. One reason is bystanders may hesitate or avoid performing CPR on a woman in public for fear of inappropriate touching of that woman. More importantly, most people learn CPR on a flat-chested torso during training processes. So, explain to us what is CPR and how critical is it to perform CPR in cardiac arrest emergencies? Before we dive into the gender gap,、mm-hmm. so as you explained, Hoyang, I think CPR is mainly a way to save the life of. People who is in cardiac arrest—that means somebody's heart is no longer able to pump blood—and CPR can just help to attempt to restart their heart. And、uh, it's very important because cardiac arrest remains a major public health problem globally. I mean, and immediate CPR can really double or even triple chances of survival after cardiac arrest. And if we look at specific data about how important CPR is, and we can tell from how prevalently this cardiac arrest problem is, I mean there are more than three hundred and fifty-six thousand out-of-hospital cardiac arrests annually in the United States, and nearly ninety percent of them fatal. And that's from the American Heart Association. And in China, the National Center for Cardiovascular Diseases. Tell us that about five hundred fifty thousand people die of sudden cardiac arrest in China every year. So that means to learn CPR is vital to save people's life. And、uh, as scientists suggest, that CPR can really temporarily treat cardiac arrest until more advanced emergency treatment is available to the person experiencing such problem. So it's vital to make every person to learn about、mm-hmm. how to conduct CPR because it's not really that complicated and it's fairly. Quite simple technique that everybody can learn, and it's basically about like chest compressions, right?、Mm-hmm. But you need to really do it in, in the right way and in the right position. However, as you said, there still remain gender differences in terms of conducting CPR in public. Yes, sadly, there are some sobering statistics on the gender disparity in CPR training and application. Josh, fill us in on the global figures in that aspect. Yeah, well, there's. A similar sort of story、uh, in the U.S. and U.K. as well. In the U.S., there's quite a lot of research that's gone into this. I found more research in the U.S. than in the U.K., my home country, and some pretty staggering statistics. Actually, again, in the U.S., more than 350,000 sudden cardiac arrests occur outside a hospital each year. This is according to、uh, the American Health Association statistics, and though the vast majority of these actually occur at home. Um, about ninety percent in adults and thirteen percent in children happen in public,、mm-hmm. and this is really what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about this occurring in public because, of course, this is the scenario in which another member of the public, a stranger, would be in a position to help. And so, these are the statistics that these are the percentiles that we we want to be looking at here.、Um, bystander CPR. Uh, similarly,、uh, as was said,、uh, I also found that it, it can double or triple 
a person's chance of survival, which is massive, right? So the seriousness of this is uh, plain to see. But women are less likely to get such help. A 2018 study published in Circulation Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes in the US found that 45% of men received bystander CPR compared with only 39% of women. And so out of this, we they concluded that men had a 23% higher odds of survival rate than women, which is huge, mm-hmm. right? Also, um, there was some research that was presented in the 2021 American Heart Association's Virtual Resuscitation Science Symposium. Shall I say that again quickly? Sure. The American Heart Association's Virtual Resuscitation Science Symposium. um, And uh, they asked why women are less likely to receive CPR from a bystander than men. And the research suggested that it may be fueled by worries of being accused of sexual assault or doing physical harm Mm. to the woman. Um, And these insights are also backed up by another survey from two years ago um, that found of 520 men and women who were asked to rank potential reasons why someone might not want to provide CPR to a woman based on the sex of the rescuer. And the survey um, found that uh, they may be hesitant because of the same reasons. Um, They said the biggest reasons male rescuers would refrain from giving it was fear of being accused of sexual assault or inappropriate touching, whereas the biggest reason for a female rescuer um, would be fear of harming uh, mm. the the person who needs CPR. Right. And the presence of breasts may confuse a person or cause hesitation. And actually, here I can offer my female perspective on this. And also, I think this sheds light on a general... Um, predicament of CPR education in general. That is, even in our organization, there was once a CPR teaching session held. And did I learn much from it? (laughs) Um, Guilty as charged, not very much, because as it might appear, this is not a hugely complicated procedure, not rocket science, but as an average person to um, press another stranger's chest in great uh, strength, I'm scared to do that. And and as time moves on, you kind of just forget the um, know-abouts and then the important tips. You, you kind of just forget. Also, even as a woman, I don't really know how to handle the breast area. And because this has something to do with the mannequin torsos that were used as, you know, educational display and uh, as a simulator, so to speak, I think this is, um, this contributes a lot towards, you know, when people feel hesitant in wanting to help when it is a female victim that we're looking at. So, Lee, tell us more about the reasons contributing to this disparity with the aim of helping more people perform CPR on women when needed. Yeah, I think, you know, besides what you and Josh mentioned, like people might fear of touching the chest of a woman who they don't really know or they might fear that they might just hurt this person Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to a female victim and they can feel that they are more vulnerable to very strong um, compression and i think there's also another reason that contributed to this gender disparity is that actually a lot of people don't really know that women can also be vulnerable of cardiac arrest you know especially when you think of cardiac arrest i would say for a lot of people at least for me you know the first image that pops up in my mind would be an elderly man you know in his 50s or 60s it's it's just like people are less aware that women can also suffer from cardiac arrest and people usually relate men to uh, you know cardiac um, cardiac diseases in general, but in fact that you know data shows that one in three women die of heart diseases, and a major part of the, the problem with women and heart diseases is the recognition, is detention, and is the lack of sweet intervention. Because as you said, Huyang, people might just hesitate when in need yeah. of doing the CPR. However, 
Also, there's research suggesting that every minute without CPR could just decrease a person's chance of survival by 10%. So that seconds of hesitance could be just vital in terms of you would just say, save this person or not. Mm -hmm. So these are all the reasons behind. In the meantime, you mentioned a very important issue that is during the whole training process of CPR, usually we use male mannequins, mm -hmm. which means they are flat chested. They, mm -hmm. they don't really have breasts, of course. So that would just make people you know, less familiar with conducting CPR on a person with breasts. So that's why we're seeing um, actions and moves to really promote that general awareness. And especially one organization, they just try to create female mannequins yeah. for CPR training. Right. The absence of realistic female patient simulators may bias training for and research into patient care and then the using of only male simulators will not allow trainees to experience the social differences associated with the care of a female patient. Also, I'd like to um, highlight one other fact before we get into the female torso simulator is that a lot of the times um, people tend to mistakenly think women don't suffer cardiac arrest in the sense that women's heart attack symptoms frequently defer than men's and therefore tend to go without the proper medical attention needed. This is according to the American Heart Association. Some women may appear to have acid influx or the flu when in fact they're experiencing symptoms of heart troubles and that could lead to an attack. And WebMD adds that women may exhibit jaw pain, back pain, shortness of breath, nausea, and vomiting along the chest pain while having a heart attack. But these are different symptoms to men. So actually, with the same ailment, it manifests differently. And there is a gender difference there. And if the medical attention sort of tilts quite a bit more towards the male situation, then there are these female situations that simply fly under the radar and people don't notice. With that in mind, and we see that nowadays there are new CPR training products designed to represent the female anatomy, which aims to improve survival rates in women suffering cardiac arrest. And what do we see as the development in that area? Yeah, actually, in 2019, I think it's in the States, um, scientists and the relevant organizations, they tried to create a female, I would say a first female mannequin for CPR training. And uh, it's from, and it was really collaboration between the New York ad agency and also the organization US of Women. And it's basically, I think it's quite easy to understand. It's basically a mannequin with chest. Mm -hmm. And it's quite different from the flat chested mannequin that we use a lot in CPR training before. And um, its designs are really open sourced, meaning that everyone can really download the design and construct their own mannequin attachment. And uh, according to the creator of this female mannequin, their idea behind this designs really to address gender disparities in training CPR and also the performance of CPR and really trying to normalize giving CPR to a woman, which is vital for anyone experiencing cardiac arrest. Yeah, I think this is one of the main solutions to this whole issue is that there's a lack of female mannequins. And this, this is not just in CPR. This is in all kinds of tests. Actually, I found that the first female crash test dummy to be used and have a standardized model in the US wasn't until 2012. So this is another situation where, you know, seat belts and the way anything that holds uh, certain body types into a seat are different as well. And they need to be designed as such. So I think that having more female mannequins, having people train to do CPR on mannequins that have breasts is definitely a pretty tangible step forward, right? Because the steps involved in performing CPR are, are the same across the board, right? It doesn't matter what right. body type it really is. Yes. Okay. I just, I would like to put this question in a simple and straightforward manner. Do breasts get in the way of CPR? Well, in theory, if you conduct CPR on a person, you would just uh, have to touch the chest of this person. However, scientists tell us that 
breath do not really get in the way of CPR because chest compressions during CPR might require you to push down on the center of the chest and therefore you might touch the breath. However, they don't really get in the way or just prevent you to perform different CPR technique because to perform CPR for someone either with a flat chest or someone with breast is pretty the same. And that's why I think um, people don't really need to hesitate when conducting CPR for a woman with breast. That's pretty simple and everyone should know about it. Right. Um, this reminds me of a story um, a while ago, and I think it's loosely connected to this topic, but I think it might offer um, new light in the discussion. That is, um, there's been this discussion about uh, adding more diversity to mannequins and in the fashion mm. world as well. And here we're talking about uh, medical and CPR or area. Um, but here, let's say the color of the skin isn't really as much of a difference or maybe that much of a point of discussion. But here, gender is the thing because gender actually has a different manifestation in medicine by the sound of it in certain aspects. But this was not something that um, experts in the field used to think about. Um, gender disparity is real and deserves our attention, but this should not divert our attention to also the pre-existing problem of people generally not knowing how to perform CPR resuscitation procedures and we have some facts here and i'd like to check with you guys what do you see as ways to curb this big issue yeah i think that's a really good point because i i think that it's also a little bit unfair to just say to everybody that's even listening to this and say you should perform cpr on anybody and you know i myself have um had very limited training in CPR. I, I can barely remember and I've never, I'll be honest, I've never performed it. And the idea of doing it on anybody kind of makes me nervous. It's yeah. such a responsibility. And so maybe the responsibility uh, lies on bigger institutions and maybe it should be a compulsory part of education. I personally think that it should be. I think that you don't need formal training to perform CPR. I think that's pretty general knowledge. But still, although that is the case, it's not a compulsory thing to learn and maybe it should be. So I think that could be a step forward and then having two kinds of mannequins maybe, for example, for people to practice on or at least mix it up. Um, so yeah, uh, there's definitely some things that I remember and I've read up on before this show. Of course, the first thing you should always do is call the emergency services, right? Um, and uh, before you do anything, that's that's what you need to be doing. and then you can uh, consult uh, your training if you've had it. Um, I, I personally don't even think that I have the authority to give out the instructions on how to do it on this radio station. And, and, and I think that's quite telling actually mm -hmm. of how little so many people know about it. Yeah, and I second that opinion, like I said earlier on. Now when I look back, I've actually received training twice, but I still don't know how to do it in a precise manner. And I'm scared to touch anybody else's body, especially in that life-saving moment. You don't want to mess it up. And also you kind of think about the legal consequences mm -hmm. or the ramifications um, that come with it as well. And I see all these um, reports on the internet encouraging people to not think too much and when it comes to saving somebody's life. But you have to think about these things. It's You don't want to accidentally increase the risk of another person's life or death kind of situation. And yeah, what do you think, Lee? Yeah, I think, I think many people would just... Uh fear that they might just break ribs of this person when conducting CPR. And that's very common anxiety and fear when they need to think about whether or not to give a CPR to this person. But I want to say the worst and the most harmful thing is to do nothing, especially yeah. when it uh, comes to cardiac arrest out of hospital and bystanders help and bystanders immediate help is very important. And uh, I think that's why I think China has been inclu included uh, training CPR as a compulsory 
courses in in、um, school. Yeah, in school. Yeah, I think so. That's a very good step to really let more people to really learn about CPR and to get used to like giving CPR, and、uh, that's a very effective、um, measure. In the meantime, I think it's also important to. Involve greater diversity in training materials of CPR. If we are talking about the specific gender disparities、uh, in CPR, because I think it's not only about gender; it's also about like body size and、uh, the state of a person. In I、mm-hmm. mean, yeah,、uh, and you, the social element of it, right? Because you need to sometimes、um, un unbutton the、mm-hmm. shirt, and、right. uh, when it's a man, we. We don't think it matters, but when it's a woman and just as an average person conducting my average daily life in that situation, it's understandable that you kind of feel the social pressure or this nuance that if you have not received training or if you've not thought about it before, then when you're put up to the test, you kind of just freeze. Yes, and、uh, that's. Actually, a major concern of of a lot of people, and also when you think about those mannequins, is、uh, usually you will see like a very lean a male a mannequin in those CPR training tool. But however, I would say people who are more vulnerable to cardiac arrest are those overweight people.、Oh. Yet in reality, you don't really see a lot of mannequins with that、uh, body size. And also, there are I think there are research showing that none of those、uh, CPR training torsos are Pregnant women,、mm-hmm. so you know all these things could just make people anxious and hesitate when in need of conducting CPR to different people. So、mm-hmm. that's why I think it's really important to to have to have greater diversity in tr- CPR training tools. Right, and this is something that affects everybody because in the discussion we keep on saying performing it on somebody else,、mm-hmm. but as women here in this studio, just think about this: when we need it. We might not be getting it, and I think this is also why、um, we need to talk about these issues and really raise awareness. And it's promising to see that、um, some companies are coming up with these female mannequins or simulators of CPR. Then that could possibly help. And this is according to、uh, a study by the University of Pennsylvania, and it suggests that CPR occurs in only about. 37% of all cardiac events that happen in public locations in the U.S. and also, you know, we're we're seeing so many studies from the U.S. instead of elsewhere. I think this is also telling that while sometimes it is so important to have these studies and observations in the first place to direct resources and solutions to these areas,、um, I'd say that. The so-called gender gap in CPR is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to gender biases in the healthcare research and medical world. Lee, tell us a bit more about the other facts of gender bias in healthcare that you found.、Mm-hmm. I think、um, in healthcare industry, especially when it comes to medicine tests and health research, women are usually underrepresented. And a very vivid example would be、um, only one third of cardiovascular clinical trial subjects are female, and only thirty one percent. Of trials that include female report results by sex, and also in lung cancer, which kills more women every year than breast and other cancers combined, the inclusion of more women in clinical trials has resulted in evidence that some lung cancer treatments work better for women than men. However, while more women are participating in lung cancer clinical trials than before, they remain less likely to enroll in trials than men. And、uh, I think not only in medicine. Industry in the private life sector, you can really tell that women are somehow underrepresented. For example, a lot of gadgets are created and designed based on the size of male users instead of female users. So these are all the questions that I think we need to really think about and to have some practical measures to change the situation. You're listening to Roundtable. Coming up, Roundtable's Happy Place. Stay tuned. The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid 19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. 
He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hamyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Yang. I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, we share with you what's made us happy this week in our special segment, Roundtable's Happy Place. And AI will be taught in elementary and middle schools in Zhejiang Province. While getting students prepared for the future is definitely of good intention, but how should AI be taught in the classroom in an effective manner? If you've never sent us a voice memo, there's no better time than now. Tell us what you think. What's better? Send us your audio questions to ezfmroundtable at voxmail.com. Your questions could be answered in our heart-to-heart -heart segment, and it'd be great to include your name, the province or region you live in, so we know a little bit more about you. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast or the Yunting app. Now on Roundtable, let's move into. Roundtable's happy place. Delivery, delivery, delivery. What is it? Happiness from Roundtable. Mr. Josh Cotterell, what's your happy place this week? Well, I'm quite a big fan of Haruki Murakami, as a, a lot of people are. He's one of the most popular. Writers, I would say, fictional writers of of our time,、mm. and he's been translated into so many languages. And his popularity in the English-speaking world is、uh, it's difficult to really exaggerate. And there's one book that some people may be familiar with. If not, it's okay. And it's called "What I Talk About When I Talk About Running."、Mm. And he is a big advocate of running, obviously. And this is a non-fiction book. He does have a few of those. And I read this book and. It really resonated with me because I've always been in and out of running my whole life. I used to run, I would say, competitively when I was younger. I would do a lot of off-road track running and things like this, and I've always gone in and out of it. But recently, I've got back into it, and、uh, I, this book has really、um, sparked my enthusiasm, re-sparked my enthusiasm for running. And there's a quote. From the book that I'd I'd like to read, which is very short, and he says that the thoughts that occur to me while I'm running are like clouds in the sky, clouds of all different sizes. They come and go while the sky remains the same. Sky always. The clouds are mere guests in the sky that pass away and vanish, leaving behind the sky. And I think that that's a beautiful metaphor for how thoughts are just thoughts, right? And when you're in that sort of meditative state, which I find myself in when I am running. I'm able to understand my my worries, my anxieties, my issues as just things that will pass by. And literally, as you run, you are passing by clouds. Hopefully, if it's a nice day, right? And this is my happy place. And I and I really hope that this is something that I can keep going. And I wonder if any of our listeners also resonate with this. If anybody else is into running or has experienced this、uh, happiness as as I have, let us know. Thank you. Oh well. We're talking about Sun Shang Chun Shu in English, and it's funny that I read his books in Chinese, and you read his books in English, and now we're having this discussion in English, and、uh, it just made me、That's、feel so like cool. Yeah, it just made me feel the world is a smaller place, and it's a good feeling in the current climate. And Lee, what's your happy place? I have to say, I swear I didn't know Josh is going to talk about running because <laughs> my happy place is also about exercising.、Oh, well,、right. not entirely. About exercising, but they're relevant. My happy place that I lost three kilos, and it took me about two months. And、uh, it's not really easy to be honest, and、uh, because it involves a change of your lifestyle. And、uh, I've been 
actually regularly doing exercises like gym workouts, Pilates, hiking, and also running. And I've been trying to improve my eating habits by cooking at home more often. So that's my happy place. You know, I really want to talk about it because I know many people still suffer from huge stress and pressure to lose weight, especially for young girls. And so that's why I really want to share my stories. You know, in fact, I have been trying to lose weight for about three years or four years. I don't really remember. But until someday, I realized that I have never enjoyed the whole process because I didn't really do it in a very healthy and sustainable way. Mm. Because in the past, I could use some very extreme uh, weight loss methods, you know, although I didn't really diet, but I do push myself to do as many sports activities, as many exercises as possible. And I can go with a very strict diet plan. And uh, I could be so anxious if, if I didn't really lose weight in every week. So that was not healthy at all, right? Mm. And um, I think what really matters is that I realized that I have been body shaming myself. Mm. I cannot really accept the fact that I gained weight and I keep just telling myself you are overweight oh. and you have to, you know, try very hard to lose weight. And uh, then someday I feel, of course, I need to stop because that's not healthy and that's not good for my mood and for my body. But I really want to talk about it because I think we talk a lot about body shaming and we know that's not right. But in reality, I think many people can't really help comparing themselves mm. with those so-called perfect body shapes, especially because of the excessive exposure on social media platforms. But the thing is that I think there is no perfect body shape and uh, there is no really ideal body type. And if you want to make your body in a better shape, that's okay. But my point is that don't be too harsh on yourself and uh, do it in a healthy way with self-compassion so that when you do it, you know it's for the sake of my health and for a better mood. Mm. So that could be just easier to conduct to insist the, the whole process. Yeah. And uh, especially when you are trying to lose weight, it's natural that people want to do it very quickly, that people want a weight loss happen very quickly. But scientists already tell us that people with gradual and steady weight loss are more likely to keep the weight off. And also achieving health weight loss isn't really about a diet or a program, but really about lifestyle with healthy eating patterns, regular physical activity, and also stress management, because you have to have a good mood to really lose some weight in a healthy way. So if the overall goal seems large, just to see it as a journey rather than a final destination, because it will only make you feel much better when you are living a healthy lifestyle. So that's what I want to share for today. Oh, that's great. And I think it's such a great point that you raised, Li Yi, that we talk about body shaming is not good. We need to accept um, the body positive mm -hmm. perception and diversity in different kinds of body shapes. But we often subconsciously body shame ourselves. And being comfortable in your own skin is actually a really difficult thing. And it's an important lesson to learn in in one's life. And also, it's not just about the weight. Mm -hmm. It's about health. Also, nowadays, I see a lot more people talk about having a tone body, having mm -hmm. a really like a nice silhouette, a sporty type or whatnot. Then there's this voice at the back of my mind saying, then isn't this kind of Perfect. leading? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're still pushing the narrative of the ideal mm -hmm. body shape. It's just a different one. Right. And then, no, 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 no. That's <laughs> another trap that we don't want to fall into. So I think health is definitely really important, but also being comfortable with what you've got. I think that is an equally uh, vexing and difficult question to find your own answer with so to speak. And and I just like to say, I, I really like that quote I might have shared on the show before that is, uh, treat your body like a temple. And basically, your parents gave you this face and this body. And it's our job to keep it well, I think. And I know people go like change bits and pieces or whatnot, but there's a whole different kind of perception on how we look at ourselves. And that could just be 
Treat your body like a temple. Treat yourself well with mm. kindness. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. In my happy place this week is a little bit simple, um, but I really enjoy it. What's made me happy this week? I just had a new haircut. <laughs> Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And that's not the only response I got when I shared with friends in the office. This is what I'm going to pick for my happy place. Our hair can have an intense connection to our emotional well-being. I used to have really long hair, and it was a pain to take care of it because you need to put on conditioner and stuff. And yeah, Josh wouldn't get it because, um, you know, men don't really need to worry so much. Like we spent like an hour, some of us. Okay, okay, He Yang does. When I had long hair, I, had to, I sometimes spent like almost an hour just you know, showering mm. and taking care of my hair and all that. So anyway, I told my hairdresser to chop a whole chunk of my hair off because a fresh haircut makes you feel great. It adds an extra touch of polish. And also, I know this is a little bit maybe superstition of some sort, but I really want to just get rid of poor health, COVID, poor fortune of some sort and I know it doesn't necessarily translate but it just felt great to get that weight off my head and shoulders and why do I feel so good first of all taking the bull by the horns I mean getting this new haircut kind of provides a sense of control it puts you squarely in the driver's seat and can help you feel that you can influence certain other circumstances in our lives. And in certain situations, a new haircut can be very liberating, providing us with a new version of ourselves and new ways to present ourselves to the world. It's also a boost in confidence. Changing things up with the hairstyle is a great way to boost confidence when you feel good in the new haircut and your self-esteem is instantly boosted as well. And also, changing one's hairstyle could be a powerful tool in helping redefine or solidify one's identity. Even a simple trim has mental health benefits, and leaving the salon with a fresh cut always gives an oxytocin mood boost, since similar to a massage or chiropractic session, it's a practice of self-care in a way. So if you're looking for a way to amp it up, <laughs> then nothing can do it quite like a great new haircut from your hair stylist. It's not just a haircut, okay? It's a state of mind, a new start. So I would recommend it to you as well. <laughs> and and Yang, you know, I have been really wanting to tell this to you, but I never got a chance. I would say you look much better with your new haircut because oh. it's not only about your appearance, because I, I remember you come back with your new haircut uh -huh. after a short break, right? Mm -hmm. And I can really tell you are with much more confidence and a better mood and more freshness mm -hmm. with shorter haircut. Yeah, so it, it's mainly that I had the chance to rest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> on top of everything. So, you know, like giving yourself a bit of time to recuperate, to heal, to rest. And that's really important as well on top of everything. So, well, thank you for that comment. And coming up next, AI will be taught in elementary and middle schools in Zhejiang province. How are educators going to do it properly? We'll talk about this right after the break. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of Roundtable with myself, He Yang. I have Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Artificial intelligence has been in the news a lot lately. For these past few months, we've all witnessed ChatGPT, the powerful language generative AI, threatens to upend the job market with more advanced human-like writing. And this week, investment bank Goldman Sachs projected that AI could replace the equivalent of 300 million full-time white-collar jobs, but may also mean new jobs and uh 
productivity boom. Hopping on the AI bandwagon before it's too late is on the minds of businesses, public entities, and educators alike. In primary and secondary schools of East China's Zhejiang province, artificial intelligence will be incorporated into the compulsory curriculum of math and science. So. Zhejiang Province is known for rapid economic development, entrepreneurs, among other things. How is AI being taught, or is going to be taught, in schools there? Well, according to an official announcement at the Digital Education Conference held by Zhejiang Province, AI teaching content will be integrated into subjects such as science and mathematics in the schools. Actually, last year the province already proposed to promote the deep integration of AI in compulsory education, and then they are trying to build a unique, as they call Zhejiang-style AI education system for primary and secondary schools, and it has. Also set up two batches of AI plus education pilot areas and schools, and actually Zhejiang was one of the first provinces in China to pilot AI education among primary and secondary school students. And、uh, there's new equipment for information technology classes for grades three to grade nine, and among them Python. Of course, con- content has been added to eighth graders, and、uh, also the information technology programming language for the fresh students in senior high schools has been replaced by Python with VB, big data, AI program design, and even algorithms have been introduced to the fifth and sixth graders according to the textbook plan. So that's basically what Zhejiang Province has been doing to promote AI in the whole compulsory education system. So yeah, students will be or have been learning coding in school, but not all schools are、mm. doing this. And Hangzhou City or Wenzhou City, these are all、uh, within the jurisdiction of Zhejiang Province, and they've all come up with courses to teach students to have a head start with AI. And Josh, do you see a similar trend in the UK? Not as similar as China. China is quite famous around the world for its use of AI in the classrooms and teaching of AI in the classroom. It's actually hit the news quite a lot in the last couple of years in my own country. And the UK education system, AI certainly isn't a compulsory subject yet. It is being taught, and there's definitely a push for it. And I found quite a lot of information about that, but. It's definitely not on the same level, and for sure not the same as Zhejiang, which, as you say, and、uh, as I am aware of myself, is definitely quite forward thinking when it comes to things like this. And this is not just in Zhejiang Province, but in other places in China, we've seen similar endeavors.、Um, Li, what do you know about this? Yeah, actually, you know, as early as 2017, the State Council of China already issued. The development plan for new generation of AI technology, and it proposed to widely carry out AI science popularization activities, and it's really a national strategy being rolled out. And then in 2019, we could see some practical measures being taken by the Ministry of Education. It pointed out that Beijing, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Wuhan, and Xi'an would be the first batch of pilot cities to promote AI in compulsory education. And then in 2020, and also in 2021, and now we can see more cities are really joining the battle to. Really implement AI in the regular courses for primary schools and secondary schools, and also in Shenzhen, which is usually considered as a technology hub city, and、uh, it already incorporate the AI curriculum、uh, in compulsory courses of primary school grade eight and and also junior high and senior high. So basically, there have been different measures taken in different regions to really encourage AI. To be inclu- included in the whole education system,、mm-hmm. and then to encourage young kids to learn AI as early as possible. And here comes the question: How are you going to teach AI in the classroom? How many teachers are qualified to teach AI? Do the teachers even know to the dot what AI means? And how do you teach technology in school? 
I don't think this should be something that only stays verbally, but I remember back in the day when I was in elementary school and computers became a thing. And for a lot of uh, students born in the 1980s or 1990s, you probably have that memory of having to put on these uh, special shoe covers and go into the computer classroom where all the computers are put and um, the teacher gives a lesson on how to use the computers and we studied the DOS system. How useful was that? So Josh, I have a question for you here. How should AI be taught in schools? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I think it should definitely be taught in schools. Um, I think that it's a really important concept and um, it incorporates a lot of skills that are necessary for, I honestly think, survival. And if you want to look at it from a monetary measurement point of view, then if you just look at how relevant these skills are for future jobs. So I'd just like to say that before I speculate as to how it should be taught, because I'm not an education professional, even though I have worked as a teacher. And I think that AI actually can be taught from a very young age. And I think at least as a concept, as an introduction, I think that people should learn about just what it means, actually, artificial intelligence. And what AI basically means is for a computer to perform cognitive functions, right, such as learning, computer learning, the ability, and what, what does learning actually mean, right? It means to be able to process information, remember it, and then utilize that constantly building knowledge uh, to understand other things. So it's a computer's ability to do that. It's a computer's ability on the back of that to perceive things, and then hopefully to solve problems, hopefully not cause problems, um, but to solve problems and also to reason with things. And I think even if you're not getting into the nitty gritty of computer science and data science, these concepts are still understandable. And I think they can be taught quite early on. So I think for, for me, and I don't have a very technical background, but I, I have worked with people who work with AI. That's definitely the way that I first uh, approached it. And I mm -hmm. think we, we can start that quite early on, right? Yeah, I, th I think it's important to learn AI because um, Obviously, AI is all around us, and uh, whether or not we realize it, I mean, people already use AI in different sectors, like doctors could just use AI to diagnose patients, and uh, you look at those tech companies who have been in the battle to use AI to roll out different products to really uh, win their position in the whole sector. So I think it's quite understandable that uh, schools are trying to incorporate this AI subject to the overall education system. However, we still need to face that we don't really have so many AI special talents uh, nowadays. So that's why you see schools are trying to train their teachers, trying to give their teachers different curriculum and uh, train their uh, education methods in terms of teaching AI to students because that's very different from regular subjects, right? Because AI might involve computer operation and also software and hardware collaboration. I think it's much more complicated than the original science and technology or computer courses we have in the past decades. So obviously training is, is needed. And in the meantime, we need to understand that not all teachers are really comp com competent in teaching AI because we still face regional disparities in China. I mean, in Eastern part of the, the country, we might have better educational resources and they might be able to provide those trainings to teachers. And however, in those Western regions, some, some places still face with a lack of teaching talents and also when it comes to teaching AI, it's not it's not it's not only about teachers. It's also about uh, resources. It's also mm -hmm. it's also about laboratories. It's also about whether we have enough hardwares and softwares to provide those trainings to people. So there are so many issues to be solved. I think if we are going to really promote and popularize AI, definitely. And there's always a little bit of a skeptic voice because in our classrooms there's such heavy emphasis on tests and just memorizing so much material and regurgitating it in tests and i just fear that in technological education such as ai coding as such we're again going to be asked to memorize so many 
lines and lines of Chinese characters when there's a huge gap from the text to actually applying the technology. And with these technological subjects, the application is most important. So I wonder how it can be taught effectively in classrooms, in public education systems. I think this is definitely a really good start in wanting to disseminate this information to young people because yes, their tomorrow is going to be immersed by these kind of technological knowledge or AI or whatever is of the subject. But how do you do that remains a question because I still remember we were asked to memorize all this material for the DOS system and it was a pain and it turned out to all be efforts futile. And I, I just hope that our young people don't need to waste that time as I did in was it second grade in a classroom here. I do agree, though, that learning to code, which is part of some of these AI courses, um, is really important for people. And we've been taught for so long that this is the future, learning to code and you're always going to have a job. And now we have AI that can write this code and so many computer technology interfaces that you can build things that don't require you to use code. But if coding or this AI stuff is the fundamental language on which all of the building blocks of our new economy and social system to some extent are built, then there may be an intrinsic value of just kind of knowing how it all works. And so if we don't understand the fundamentals of the back end of so many of these systems that we use, it limits our ability to question those systems, to see other potential outcomes to these systems. And you end up with this kind of fatalism that it has to be this way because this is how it is, because you don't understand how it all came together and how it could possibly be different. So I just think as we kind of run around like chickens with our head cut off related to all of our adjustments to AI, maybe it's a time to take a minute and really think about what's it going to mean for our society. And that brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Thank you so much for your company. Thank you, Li Yi and Josh Cotterell for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time.